So acid, sorry. So fluid and electrolyte imbalance is hard to diagnose. It's kind of like the acid and base balance. It's probably not something we would necessarily notice. We'd notice that the patients were having symptoms that were a little bit vague, non-specific, and you'd refer them out for the top three things that you would think it might be. If it comes back that all of those were negative, it's something you're gonna think about in the back of your mind. It's the same thing for imbalance for electrolytes and water. So you might not think, oh my God, this is totally a calcium imbalance, but something's off. The muscles aren't reacting properly, there's chronic spasms, there's lots of fatigue and lethargy, and you've ruled out all the red flags, for example, then you can go to one of these. So diagnosing these is difficult. Um, it's not typically something that is tested for, same thing with acid and base, it's not typically tested for in a CBC. So when you get blood work done, they usually test red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and then they'll test thyroid and sugars. Other than that, unless they're looking for something specific, they don't really test for this stuff, right? So you're just gonna recognize if they've been referred out and stuff is coming back negative, think of this, keep an open mind, this could be a possibility. I don't need you to know tons about electrolyte imbalance, except that potassium is fatal. Okay, so if you have a potassium imbalance, that is very, very, very fatal. So we'll talk about some of the things that happen with a potassium imbalance. Okay. All right, so we're gonna be talking about ions. So we're gonna be talking about cations and anions. So cations, as some people call this cations, I call it cations, um, or you can have anions. So anions are a negative ion. That's how I remember it. Whereas cations are positive. So we're gonna be talking about different ions that are negatively charged and different ions that are positively charged. We should know those. Like calcium is two plus, it's positive. Magnesium plus is positive. Phosphate, for example, is negative. PO4 with a negative. Um, bicarbonate, last week we talked about HCO3 negative. So those are negative ions. What is, you guys are always covering your mouths and noses and Okay, <laughs> every week, every week. Okay, so have an idea about the negative ions and the positive ions, okay? Just have an idea about them. Um, we're gonna be talking a lot about the causes. I don't need you to memorize the cause for every single ion, I don't need you to. But there's gonna be a few that we're gonna point out that might be good to know. So typically with eating disorders, especially with bulimia, where there's a lot of vomiting, vomiting really disrupts your electrolyte balance. So that's a really significant one. Um, medications, especially if you're taking high blood pressure medications, if you're taking immunosuppressants like cyclosporin, for example, um, those will really throw off your electrolyte imbalances. Chronically taking NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, will really throw off your um, electrolyte imbalances too. So ask those questions. Can you think of something else that people would pop fairly quickly, easily, and frequently that might throw off your imbalance? Diuretics. Okay, diuretics is another one. Alcohol. Uh, alcohol can. Okay, sweating, but let's talk about medications. Over-the-counter stuff, people pop a lot. Okay, it can. Antacids. Antacids oftentimes will contain either magnesium and or Calcium, right? So calcium's a really big one. So if you're popping antacids, your calcium levels are probably gonna go 
hugely up, right? So easy stuff like that is questions you can ask about medications. If they've been taking it for a long period of time, if they've been taking a lot of it, that can really throw off the electrolytes. Now, trauma from burns and fractures. Anytime you have a significant burn, what do you lose a lot of? Water. Water. So if you're dehydrated, um, would that throw off your, your balance in the plasma? For sure. So if you have too much water, that throws off your balance, because then your electrolytes are diluted. Whereas if you don't have enough water, then you have too much electrolytes for those, which would really throw off your balance as well. So burns would be a big one, or profuse sweating, or profuse diarrhea, for example, would be another one. Anytime where you're losing a lot of fluids. <coughs> now, what about after surgeries, or after a fracture of a bone? What happens with a bone fracture? takes calcium from the cells to phosphate too, right? So when you have, let's say, a bone break. So what ends up happening is the body will actually get enzymes and start breaking down the kind of um, partially broken pieces of bones. Okay, so when you break these down, you're going to be releasing what? calcium and phosphate into the blood. So when you're releasing calcium and phosphate into the blood, will that throw off your electrolyte, imbalance, your electrolyte balance? For sure. So fractures are a very big one for certain um, of the ions. Now cell death, that's, that's vague. But anything, any kind of trauma, any kind of bone fractures, um, radiation, chemo, anything that's going to damage, even an autoimmune disease, that is going to damage your cells can release ions because if you remember a lot of cells contain ions so we'll talk about that in a little bit okay so those are the ones that we're going to focus on um we're going to talk about what's too much and what's too little so you do, are going to need to remember these words so sodium for example what is the um thing well that's that's nacl is salt so na is so sodium so when we talk about too much sodium we talk about hypernatremia or hyponatremia, okay? So the Na and then emia is gonna be for salt, for calcium, for sodium, oh, for sodium, okay? So hypernatremia or hyponatremia, and it's in a slide, you don't have to write this down, it is in a slide. So we definitely need to remember that. Potassium. You're going to have hypo, and then potassium. What's the letter for potassium? K. K. So you're going to have hypokalemia or hyperkalemia. Okay, so these are the ones that are different. So I'm writing these down because all the other ones follow a normal. Like calcium is hypercalcemia, mm -hmm. hypocalcemia. You don't have to memorize that. Magnesium, hypermagnesemia, hypomagnesemia. Don't have to memorize that, okay? So the ones that are different are sodium and potassium because the word is actually based on their letters, okay? So not on the actual English word. But we'll get to that. It is in the slides. Okay. Oh, yeah, so it's right there. So we're going to talk about pretty much all of these. 
um, very vaguely and generally, but the one we're really gonna focus on is going to be potassium, because potassium is the one that is probably the most fatal. All right, so let's talk about what these ions do. So you would have learned this in AP1, I believe. Did you guys do AP1 and AP2? Yes, right? Yes, okay. Right, yes, okay. So let's talk about all the different, so in AP1, you guys would have covered all the functions of the ions. So calcium, calcium, where do you find calcium? You find it in bones and then if you remember the hyperparathyroid, the, sorry, parathyroid hormones, which are along the thyroid hormone, will regulate how much you have in the blood, right? So if you have hyperparathyroidism or hypoparathyroidism, that'll affect the calcium levels. So you guys already knew that. So let's talk about what it does. So it's going to regulate neuromuscular junctions. So that means that when the nerves go to excite a skeletal muscle, they need calcium. So calcium is a neurotransmitter that's going to be released to be able to create that. So if you had a low amount of calcium, would your muscles necessarily be stimulated? They probably wouldn't contract. If you had too much calcium, what do you think might happen? They might go into tetanus or spasm or cramping, right? So those are the kinds of things, if you, if you know what their functions are, you can figure out what the typical symptoms would be. So cardiac muscle. Um, they're involved in the electrical stimulation of cardiac muscles, so that's really important. If you have a calcium imbalance, it will affect muscle system, the heart, the cardiovascular system, and the skeletal system. It's pretty significant. It's not common that we do have a hypo or a hyper, though, thank goodness, unless you're talking about people popping antacids. That's typically the most common one. Sodium. This is starting to become a little bit more common because everybody was so concerned about their sodium intake with regards to cardiovascular disease, right? Too much sodium increases your blood pressure, thereby increases your risk of congestive heart failure. So a lot of people over the last 10, 12 years have really been cutting back their sodium. So much so that there's actually been some individuals that have had low sodium content, which has actually caused a lot of issues. So sodium, if you remember, what do you, what do you need? Na4. You need it in blood, but so um, we talked about action potentials. The sodium potassium pump for sure. And we talked about action potentials, right? So greater potentials and action potentials. So if I don't have enough nervous calcium, disorders. I'm going to have nervous system disorders, or I'm not going to be able to activate the next neuron, or a visceral organ, or a skeletal muscle. So again, pretty significant. Um, oh yeah, we talked about, it'll also talk, um, affect your blood volume and blood pressure, which we already kind of talked about. Um, now, fluid retention. Let's just say I have a lot of sodium in my blood. What happens to the fluid from my institution? It goes in to the cardiovascular system, which now means you have less fluid in the interstitium. That's fine. What happens if you have really low sodium in the plasma? Well, if you have very low ions, do you need to hold a lot of fluid? So it's gonna go to where the ions are. So there is ions in the interstitial fluid. So if you have really low sodium, what's it gonna look like? Edema. So again, if you know those kinds of things, it makes it easy to know the signs and symptoms. All right, potassium's a big one. 
um, involved in the cardiovascular system, involved in the gastrointestinal system, so we're going to talk a lot about that. But then it's the relaxation contraction of muscles. Other than that, I'm not too concerned about it. Magnesium, um, also involved in enzyme activation. So for example, the acid-base balance, we talked about an enzyme buffer that helps internally to activate the acid-base balance. So that would affect that. Any of your enzymes involved in the gastrointestinal system, magnesium requires to be able to activate them. So it's, again, it's gonna be endocrine system as well, so it's gonna be very, very significant. Involved in the cardiovascular system, that's fine, and myoneural junction. So that's interesting. What do people usually take for supplements when they have muscle spasms or muscle cramps? They can take potassium. Magnesium, a lot of naturopaths will tell people to take magnesium. Why? Because it relaxes the body. Well, because it relaxes skeletal muscle, and why does it relax skeletal muscle? For two reasons. It vasodilates the arteries going to those muscles, and it also helps with the relaxation contraction component. So if you have- tell you to take it for anxiety? Magnesium, yeah. might. Yeah. yeah. Magnesium is for anxiety and sleep. Yeah, and it also relaxes your, your smooth muscles in your bowels. And that has to do with the vasodilation component of it. Um, yeah, the anxiety, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure about that. It could be, There's but I know that it's definitely for muscles. It's oh, really? It's a powder, magnesium nitrate, I believe. Okay. It's a powder, you put in water, and it's, it's calm, it goes up obviously. Hmm, okay. So anyways, you guys would have learned that in AP1, so if you have an idea about those things, it gives you an idea of the effects that these ions would have. Okay, so this is where we talked about hypo and hyper. So you should have an idea. If I ask you, I probably am not going to ask you something like, what's hypochloremia? Because it's right in the name, right? I'm probably not going to ask you something like hypercalcemia because it's right in the name. If I'm going to ask you one, it's probably going to be the ones that are not exactly in the name. So hypernatremia for sodium or hyponatremia and then hyper calcemia or hypocalcemia for potassium, right? Because the K. So I would probably remember these ones. Because the other ones... Calcemia, you meant kalemia. Kalemia, sorry. Yeah, calcemia. Oh, calcemia is calcium. Yeah, yeah kalemia. That is in the name, too. That is in the name. <laughs> We're good. So these ones, please remember. Because those are the ones that are different. Probably the ones I would ask, because otherwise they're already there. So the one that I need you to really remember is potassium. Okay, so potassium, whether it's too much or too little, can be very fatal. Listen, they can all be fatal. Any kind of imbalance can be fatal. But potassium's the one that's a little bit more sensitive and more likely to cause quick fatality. So please know potassium. All right, so um, kidney, kidney problems can cause almost any of these. So if we were to ask about risk factors or causes, any thyroid dysfunction, any kidney issues, they would all cause any single one of these ion dysfunctions. But the ones to remember here are gonna be, so your ACE or your high blood pressure medications, NSAIDs, we already know, anti-inflammatories. Heparin therapy is going to be your anticoagulants. So basically your cardiovascular medications can really screw up your potassium levels which again, can be fatal. And when people are on these meds, they're on them for life, usually, right? Unless there's significant modifications that have been made where the blood pressure comes down on its own, but typically these people are on it for life. So that's pretty significant. And these are gonna be meds that you're gonna see in people every day. 
and practice. So that's really, really common. Cyclosporin, like we talked about, is an immunosuppressant. So you might only see this in patients that are doing uh, transplants, so to avoid transplant reduction. Rejection. That's typically what that is going to be used for. Now, adrenal gland. Um, what does the adrenal gland release? Do you guys remember? Cortisol. Cortisol, yeah, so your stress hormones. Aldosterone. Aldosterone's a big one. So what does aldosterone do? Do you remember? So it's an antidiuretic, right? So it's going to prevent you from peeing significantly, right? So it holds back water. So you're going to have more reabsorption going on in the nephron. So that's important. So if you have adrenal gland problems, that's going to create a lot of issues. And then, of course, hypoaldosteronism. Where does aldosterone get released? Adrenal medulla. And then it goes to the kidneys. To in what part of the kidneys does it stimulate to cause reabsorption of water? Do you guys remember? Yeah, distal convoluted tubule and collecting ducts. So that's good. Okay, now low potassium, vomiting, diarrhea are big ones. So you will see low potassium with people who have who are severely ill. So that's a, a big issue for people who have been vomiting significantly, but also with bulimics. So that's really important. Is that what eventually kills them, or is it the like lack of nutrition? Um. I, I think it would depend on the cause. So how long has it been going on for? Because um, the lack of nutrition, that would, take a re that would take a long, long time before you would have enough of a breakdown because of lack of nutrition. Um, the calcium could happen first, but then it, the kidneys, the kidneys will start to shut down. The liver might start to shut down. So the heart will definitely start to shut down. Um, so I don't know what would necessarily come first. I think it would depend on the person and what their level was, their you know pre-bulimic level, health levels. So then anorexia would also do it? Anorexia would do it, not as significantly, because it's the act of the vomiting that actually releases a lot of the ions, and, and particularly potassium. So that's when you are dealing with someone who is vomiting profusely, you should, and for a prolonged period of time, I'm not talking about like for a day, but profusely, you probably want to get their potassium levels checked because that is really important. All right, so medications like diuretics, penicillin, steroids, blah, 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 that kind of stuff. Um, so just remember your hyperkalemia and hypokalemia because those are the most fatal ones. The rest of them, I'm not really going to ask too many specific questions about. Okay, general signs and symptoms for all the ion imbalances, for all the electrolyte imbalances. So muscle cramping, muscle tetany, muscle weakness, fatigue, lethargy. So again, does that scream out to you electrolyte imbalance? Muscle cramps does. Could, but are there any other things that could cause muscle uh, muscle cramping? Could thyroid? Thyroid would actually be the first one I would think about because it's more likely. Electrolyte imbalances aren't here in you know, first world countries. They're not really all that common. In third world countries, they may be much more common, but here it would not be very common. Hyper and hypothyroidism are very significant for causing muscular issues. But again, if you look at these, they're very, paresthesia could be TOS, right? Could be something neurological that's not really a big deal, like a lower motor neuron lesion. Um, and then bone pain. Bone pain is very nonspecific. You could have bone pain if you've got a flu. 
So again, symptoms are very nonspecific. Now, anything extra that could cause it, if your urine is really, really uh, pungent, so there's a really strong smell, or it's really, really yellow, that could give you an indication of low vitamin water B. content. Right, what's that? Vitamin B. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> yes, if you ingested too much of it. Um, convulsions and seizures. That can happen um, with any of the electrolyte imbalances, but seizures are actually really, really common with hypokalemia, so low potassium, which is a big issue. Um, headaches, significant, and then edema, we already talked about why that is. Yeah. Trigger is, can you lift your skin? So this would be good trigger, you would have normal trigger here, whereas if your skin was really firm and adhesed, and not very mobile, that would be a lack of trigger. So this would be tested by blood tests, but like I said, this are, they're not typically tests that are tested. Again, here it's not very common. So OHIP usually doesn't do testing unless something's really, really common and needs to be screened, and this isn't typically very common and needs to be screened. But that's how you would test it. Now, some of the complications. Any of your organs can fail if you have an electrolyte imbalance. So if you have too much water, not enough water, or a lack of, let's say, calcium or magnesium or potassium, any of those can lead to significant damage to the lungs, liver, kidney, heart, which are all kind of major organs. So they are possibly all fatal. But what is the worst one? Potassium is the most dangerous one. All right. So, eat a banana, <laughs> banana coconut, coconut water, coconut juice, coconut milk, um, has a lot of potassium as well. I learned that recently. Okay. You know what's really good for that too? Chia seeds. Oh, really? I didn't know that. Okay, so we have our kidney. What? They say you can't absorb the chia seed, they say you should mill it. Okay, let's talk about the urinary system again. So if this is your kidney, what do we have coming out of the kidney? The ureter. And then the ureter goes to the? urinary bladder, and then what takes the urine out? Urethra. The urethra. Okay. There's probably going to be a question about the pathway of urine. I don't know if it's going to be on quiz four, quiz five, or final, but somewhere there's probably going to be a question about the pathway of urine. So, we talked about it last week. Urine goes through the glomerulus into the Bowman's capsule, proximal convoluted tubule, Descending loop of Henle, ascending loop of Henle, distal convoluted tubule, collecting duct, papilla, minor calyx, major calyx, and then renal pelvis, and then ureter, urinary bladder, urethra, out. You've already tested us on this. I know. <laughs> so it's good to be reminded of it. No, so. We already, we already passed that test. <laughs> yes. It's okay. There's only one question about it. Okay. So we said when you have an infection of the urinary bladder and the urethra, what do we call that? Urinary tract infection. <coughs> okay. Now, 
what happens, let's just say, which it's more common in kids, um, let's just say that you now have a huge amount of, what is the causative agent typically? E. coli. E. coli. It's the most common one. So let's say you have a huge abundance and population of E. coli. Where does it want to go? So there's E. coli all through the urethra, there's E. coli all through the urinary bladder because it's being populated because there's nothing killing it. So then where does it want to go? It wants to go where there's no pressure, right? So there's already so much pressure with so much bacteria in the urethra and the urinary bladder, so it's going to go up into the ureters. So as soon as you start to get an infection into the ureter, we said that we called this an upper urinary tract infection. So as the E. coli travels up the ureter, it then ends up in the kidney. When the kidney becomes infected with E. coli, or it's 90% E. coli, it doesn't have to be E. coli, but it's 90% E. coli. We're gonna call this pyelonephritis, okay? So that is, what does the word pylo mean? It means pelvis. And then what is nef? So the nephron. And then itis? Inflammation. So you have inflammation of the nephron in the pelvis. Okay, so that's the breakdown of pyelonephritis. Once you have bacteria, what does the body want to do to fight it? If you've got bacteria growing that's not supposed to be in this area, what happens? What does the body do? So it melts an inflammatory response and it's going to sound an send an immune response. So here you have your very delicate, your very delicate afferent neuron and then glomerulus and then Bowman's capsule and then proximal convoluted tubule, distal convoluted tubule. So those tubules are responsible for secretion and reabsorption. So if they start to get damaged, do you secrete and reabsorb the way you should? No. Now what happens to the capillary? What happens to the glomerulus? It's a single-walled, very delicate capillary. So it's going to start to have damage on it. Oh yeah, this one doesn't work. So if it has damage on it, if it breaks basically because there's too much pressure, for example, what happens? The body's going to put down scar tissue. So does scar tissue filter properly? No. So now you're going to have these afferent arterioles that are supposed to be going into the glomerulus, getting rid of all the toxins and the garbage, and putting it into the Bowman's capsule to the proximal little convoluted tubules and then all the way down. But what happens when you get a bunch of scar tissue? It's, it's not, uh, not going to filter. It also means how much flow are you going to get through here? Not very much. So now you're going to have some retrograde fluid backing up the system, the cardiovascular system. Okay, so now that we understand that, typically how does urine flow? It goes from the kidneys to the ureter to the urinary bladder to the urethra, right? So typically it would go in this fashion. Bacteria is going in the opposite direction. So bacteria is going like this. So you'd be peeing a lot to try and get rid of bacteria. 
Well, that's the goal. Pee a lot so that you can try and get rid of the bacteria. But once it's in the kidney, it's too late. Which is why when you do have a urinary tract infection, it is really, really, really important that you do drink lots of water and you do take antibiotics, even though I'm not pro-antibiotics, because the chances are if this populates, it can go up to the kidneys. And once it goes up to the kidneys, that's significant. That's going to be permanent. Well, we talked about that last week. The cranberry juice, actually, there's no research that supports um, that cranberry juice actually helps with the urinary bladder infection or a urethra infection, but what it does do is on recurrent infections, it decreases the adherence of the E. coli to the walls, right? So it allows it to fluff off quicker. Um, so blueberry juice or cranberry juice, either one of those. But we need to remember that the E. coli is going in the wrong direction. So it is reflux. It's going in the wrong direction. Like when you eat, your food's supposed to go down the esophagus into the stomach. When you have gastroesophageal reflux disease, it's going in the opposite direction. So we're going to have a reflux occurring here, and that reflux is what's going to cause the pyelonephritis. Does that make sense? Okay. So before we move on, tell me some of the symptoms that we had with a urinary tract infection? What were the really common ones? Burning pee. Okay, so dysuria, so painful or burning pee. Urgency. Yes, urgency. Frequency. And then frequency. And then yet other things like nocturia or in kids you'd have enuresis, which is bedwetting. Um, you may or may not have a fever with a lower urinary tract infection. Okay, so that's not an indicative factor. However, what do you think you would have with a kidney infection? That is usually one of the ways that you can differentiate between a urinary tract infection and pyelonephritis. Is there any other thing that you could differentiate the two with? So maybe a location? Pain, kidney pain, lower back. Okay, so this will be low back pain, typically. So it's gonna be, or we say flank, right? And then where would you have a urinary bladder or a urethral infection pain? So yeah, it's usually going to be um, in the uh, oops, pink along the pubic symphysis area. Okay, so could you still have dysuria, frequency of urination, and urgency of urination with pyelonephritis. Yeah. Very much so. So those symptoms really don't help you identify whether it's pyelonephritis or urinary tract infection. Could you have blood with a pyelonephritis? Could you have blood in your urine? You've damaged the glomerulus. Could there be red blood cells getting through? For sure, they're not supposed to, but they could. Now what about with the urinary bladder infection or urethral infection? Could that damage the mucosal layer and have a little blood? In, yes, so you can have blood in either one of those. It's called hematuria. So those are not really indicative of either one. So the two things, if you are reading a case, the two things that will really identify whether this is kidney or a urinary bladder infection or a urinary tract infection is going to be your fever and the location of pain. Okay, so those are the big ones. All right. 
Um, so that's fine. We already talked about that. Inflammation. We already know the causes of aging is E. coli. So vesicular uteral reflux. Please know that. The E. coli are going in the wrong direction. They are refluxing through the ureters up to the kidneys. That's probably going to be a question at some point. Right? The vesiculo is the urinary bladder. It's a vesicle. Right? It's a structure that holds fluid. And then uteral going up the ureter, reflux going in the wrong direction. Okay. All right, some risk factors. If you have urinary incontinence, for example, warm, moist, wet area for prolonged hours and hours and hours, could that lead to a chance of bacteria populating in the urethra? And if it doesn't get treated, going up into the kidney? What about recurrent urinary tract infections? Very much so. Um, the older we are, the more likely it is to happen. It uh, can also happen in young children. Like, so usually they say anywhere between like the ages of two, three, up until the age of 10. So if your child has not been wetting the bed anymore and all of a sudden starts wetting the bed, this is one of the symptoms you wanna think about. Because there may not be pain in kids. They may not be able to recognize the pain yet depending on how young they are but the bedwetting could be the first symptom. And kidneys, inflammation in the kidneys is significant, okay, because then you're not evacuating toxins. So that is a big deal. Um, diabetes, another one. Spermicide use. I was trying to research why spermicide use. I actually don't know why spermicide use, except that it would provide, again, a moist environment, but I'm not sure why. And then the frequent sexual activity, I think we know why. Is it, is it because I like the good bacteria eats the bad it's bacteria. It's possible. I just haven't, I, I really couldn't find any reason why. Yeah. I, uh, I really don't know why. But anyways, they say that's a significant one. All right. So pyelonephritis, again, we have fever and we have flight pain. Those are the two big manifestations that are going to differentiate between urinary tract infection and pyelonephritis. The rest of these, polyuria, which just means you're peeing often. How much are you peeing? Bloop, 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 bloop. But you're going often because you feel like you have to pee all the time. Nocturia just means night peeing. So if you typically don't wake up at night and you're starting to wake up at night, that's significant. Or if you only wake up one or two, two times a night and now you're waking up three or four, then that would be significant as well. That's fine. E. coli, we know about that. That's important. No, so urinary tract infection is no, going to be an infection. So when we say urinary tract infection, this is what we mean. Right. When you say upper urinary tract infection, do you mean pyelonephritis? Pyelonephritis. Okay. Yes. Which nobody says the word upper urinary tract infection. Okay. They use the term pyelonephritis. Yeah. All right. So make sure you know the signs and symptoms. That's really big. We talked about a lot of those. Oh, yeah. Can I borrow somebody? You just need someone to have a seat. So I'm just going to get you to face the board and then just have a seat. Is there any back pain I should know about? Okay. So if I am suspicious.
suspecting a kidney infection, um, usually what we'll do is, and you're not taking this, right? No, I won't. Okay, and you're okay if I place my hands on you? Yes. Okay, so you're gonna be palpating things and pretending like you're feeling for the spine and you're feeling for the muscles and you're gonna do this and you're gonna punch. And when I say punch, it's not, it's not like, it's not that, like it's a, you're like, you're going at it. It's like you really want to punch somebody out. You just got okay? punched. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, a was it painful? Punch, it was nice. It wasn't bad. It wasn't bad. It wasn't you like, didn't want to turn around and no, punch me, though. No. So if, I mean, <laughs> most of these tests are not nice, but if they had a kidney infection, they would literally want to turn around and punch you out because it is excruciatingly painful when you do a kidney punch test. You turn like a champ on that. But, <laughs> so I don't, I don't typically tell, like I'll tell my patients that I'm going to, you know, I'm going to be feeling for your low body, I'm going to be feeling different the structures The punch is a surprise? I, well, because if they expect it, then they're going to guard on it, right? So I don't want them to be guarding. I, I want that vibration to get through you all of the subtissue to be able to get to me. Well, <laughs> it's, it's, that's truly how you would do a kidney punch. It's like a Holman sign test. Yeah. How do you do it? You say, I'm going to work on your ankle a little bit. I'm just checking your range of motion. <clears throat> like it's quick and hard, right? It's aggressive, the dorsiflexion. There's a reason why. You need those muscles to contract quickly to create pressure on that thrombus, if there is one there, and which will cause significant pain. How long does it take for it to go from like a lower urinary How good's your immune system? Is that how it's dependent? So typically in the older and in the children, it could take a couple of weeks. Typically in us, it would take a few months before that would happen. Um, but again, if you're you know, a, a relatively middle-aged adult, for example, and you're immunosuppressed or you had significant diabetes that were being uncontrolled, it could only maybe take a couple of weeks. So it would, it would depend on your status. But typically the young individuals, like the children and then the older individuals, it will happen a lot quicker. Um, so please know your manifestations. That's really important because that's what's gonna differentiate between a urinary tract infection and pyelonephritis, okay? Urinary tract infections, not a big deal. Go get some antibiotics, drink lots of water, you're fine. But pyelonephritis is a completely different story. Once you've got damage to the glomerulus, you can't fix that. Is it a right? tissue? Will it heal or say you have to say you're Well, scared? it heals like, with scar tissue. Wow. So, yeah, no, once you've got pyelonephritis, you've damaged nephrons. Now, hopefully you've caught it early enough and only a few nephrons are damaged because you have millions of them. But if it's not caught early and the nephrons, significant amount of nephrons are now destroyed or damaged, then you're in trouble. Yeah. Okay, so we already talked about that. Um, so just comparing the two, the big ones that you wanna remember are fever and where the pain is. We talked about that already as well. I'm not too concerned about the acute and chronic. Hi, right. how does this get diagnosed? How do you diagnose a urinary tract infection? How does the medical profession pediatrics? Yeah, so you're gonna do a urinalysis. So that's easy. They're gonna look for the cloudy urine. They're gonna look for blood in the urine. They're gonna look for bacteria in the urine. And so they might do a, a cytoscope, which is basically they just take the urine, look under it under a microscope, look to see if there's bacteria, and then they can be sure of that. Now if it's in the kidneys, um, you probably will still have the bladder infection and the urethral infection, but how do you get up into the kidneys? So they can actually go up um, with a scope all the way up 
the bladder, the ureter, and into the kidney, and take a little biopsy of it, and then check it. Um, that's usually going to be the most important way to diagnose this is really biopsying the kidney because you can never be 100% sure that it's not just urinary tract infection until you actually assess the kidney. Yeah, your symptoms are very significant with giving you an indication as pyelonephritis, but truly until you've biopsied the kidney, you don't know. Why so, would you do that if this treatment's the same? Um, if you want to biopsy the kidney, if you're just going to give them antibiotics, which you would for the UTI anyway. So how significant is the damage? Is that what you're looking for? So, because now they may, are they getting close to end-stage renal disease? Because if that's the case, then you may want to get them on dialysis earlier than later, right? Or get them on a transplant list if they're a healthy young individual sooner than later. Um, so that's, you're right. The, now the antibiotic also will be different for pyelonephritis and the urinary tract infection. They'll usually give like a fairly low dose urinary or antibiotic to urinary tract infection, where they may look at IV antibiotics for pyelonephritis. Like you, you probably will be hospitalized. Chances are you'll probably be hospitalized for that. Yeah? I'm sorry, okay. Um, so that's important. Um, that's fine. Yeah, so your ultrasound, your CT, um, and your urethrogram, those are basically just to check to see how much has the kidney expanded, has it gotten bigger, and how much damage is it, how much blood supply is still going through there, all that kind of stuff. Um, the end complication if the, um, is end-stage renal disease. So if you have end-stage renal disease, um, eventually your liver is going to have to take over for detoxifying and your heart's gonna be overloaded because you're not gonna be able to get rid of fluid or maintain fluid. So typically this is going to lead to death. And it could take a few years to 10 or 15 years depending on how quickly the end-stage renal failure happens, but this is something very significant. So refer out if you think there's a kidney issue. So if you have two kidneys, yeah. to both of them? Um, typically, if there's a urinary bladder infection, it will follow up both ureters. You may have one that's worse than the other, but it will usually follow up both ureters. Yes, and we're gonna talk about some of the conditions soon, like a polycystic kidney disease can sometimes only be unilateral. And that's fine if it's significant enough that you can actually take out that kidney and live with the other kidney. Um, but yeah, this one is typically going to be bilateral. And that's all just extra stuff. Okay, yeah. So we're going to talk about renal cysts. So we're going to be talking about PKD mostly, polycystic kidney disease, or yeah, polycystic kidney disease is what we're probably going to be talking about most today. But there's six different kinds of renal cysts. This is what it looks like on the outside. On the inside, I've got to show you what it looks like. It looks like this. So what ends up happening is, if there's damage to the epithelium or the basement me membrane in any parts, so the proximal convoluted tubules, the loop of Henle, the distal convoluted tubules, or the collecting duct, if there's any damage to the epithelium or to the basement membranes, they actually end up holding water, like themselves. Those cells that are damaged or that basement membrane that's damaged, they hold water. As they hold water, we know that there's constantly fluid being go going through all of these structures. So as the fluid's going through, if they're damaged, they just keep collecting water. 
I don't know why, that's, that's how they fix themselves. They think they're fixing themselves by collecting water. Once they become a few millimeters wide or big, they actually detach from any of the tubules. So they detach from the nephron and they can continue to grow. So they can end up being a few centimeters. Now, when you have one, you can have simple cysts, but oftentimes with most of these conditions, you're gonna have multiple cysts. So if you have multiple cysts coming off, now imagine that these cysts continue to grow. Would they compress on any of the glomerulus or the proximal convoluted tubule or the collecting duct? Right, so if you're compressing on those, are they able to get the fluid to the renal pelvis and out the ureters? No, so there's a big problem. So with this happens this, okay? So polycystic kidney disease, PKD is what we're gonna be talking about. Mostly. Because out of all of the renal cysts, it is probably the more common one that is diagnosed. So you need to know about the pathogenesis. When there's epithelial damage or basement membrane damage, they end up holding the water that's found anywhere along the nephron. That creates a little bit of a cyst. As it continues to be damaged, it continues to hold water. They'll grow to a few millimeters. Once they hit a few millimeters, they actually detach and continue to grow. And once they continue to grow, they actually will start to compress the nephron, which now means the nephron's not able to do its job. Okay, so that's kind of the pathogenesis of polycystic kidney disease. Yeah, okay, so different disease, but similar process. Now, something to know about polycystic kidney disease, which is very different than any other um, renal cyst. You guys saw that the adrenal medulla had cysts on it, so that's common. But the other thing that's common is liver cysts. And in fact, if you have, if they suspect PKD, yes, they're gonna do genetic testing, yes, they're gonna do an ultrasound because they wanna look at how big the is. How big is a kidney gonna get if you've got multiple cysts? It's gonna get enlarged, so they're gonna do an ultrasound to see the size, and then they'll also do an ultrasound, an abdominal ultrasound to see if there's any cysts in the liver. If there's cysts in the liver, almost sure it's PKD because none of the other renal cysts really cause cysts into the liver. So that's important because that is something significantly different from PKD than any other renal cyst. Okay, so it is more common as the older you get. It is more common, but it can happen at any age. So that's really important. Um, it is the most common cause for end-stage renal disease and particular polycystic kidney disease. Okay, so most of the things I'm going to be talking about are going to be PKD. So there are six different types of cysts. I don't really need you to know those too much, but I definitely need you to know PKD. So polycystic kidney disease is inherited, which means it is genetic. Okay, that is important. Which means one of the ways that you can diagnose this is through a genetic test. Would people make it to maturity to? Okay, so if you have the autosomal um, recessive polykidney cystic disease, no, so that you should. No, so um, that it's really severe, and you may not even make it through birth. And if you do make it through birth, if it's not a stillborn, then usually within the first few years of life, if you have autosomal recessive polykidney disease, you, yeah, like you're not gonna live very long. 
But autosomal dominant polykidney, um, polycystic kidney disease, funny enough, actually is usually asymptomatic in children and adolescents and starts to actually experience or express the genetic disorder in adulthood. So they say somewhere between the age of 30 to 50. So you're not gonna start to have signs and symptoms until you become an adult. So there are two different types of PKD. A really fatal one, which is the recessive version, and then the dominant version is uh, usually in adulthood that you'll see it. But that's coming up. I find it strange that the dominant one is not the more profound one, because usually dominant diseases are the more... You're gonna express that gene. Yeah, Yeah. it's dominant. Mm -hmm. But the recessive one is the more profoundly... Which means that you would have two individuals, you'd have the mother and father that would both be providing that deficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so they also call them infantile PKD, which is the one you don't really survive from for many years, and then adult PKD. So we'll talk about that. That's coming up in a second anyway. So we already looked at all those. That's fine. So risk factors. If I have, if I'm hypertensive, I have a lot of pressure going through the glomerulus. Everybody agree with that? By a lot of pressure going through the glomerulus, the glomerulus is going to vasodilate, which is now going to allow for more fluid to go into the Bowman's capsule. More fluid in the Bowman's capsule means more fluid in the proximal convoluted tubule, the loop of Henle, the distal convoluted tubule, and the collecting duct. If there's more fluid, could you damage the basement membrane? If you damage the basement membrane, how does it fix itself? It picks up some fluid. So having excessive pressure through a nephron can damage the basement membrane and the epithelium, which is why that would happen. Multiple pregnancies, again, puts a lot of pressure. Pregnancy puts a lot of pressure on the kidneys, so it would be kind of the same mechanism. Male gender, I don't know why male gender more. Um, and then there's the gene. So if you express the PKD1 gene, then that would be the case. Where is it found? Is it found on the Y? Is that Y? Or is it found on the X? And um, it's a chromosomal defect that's not X or Y dominant. I think it's a chromosomal 8 on the eight at the hand of 8, and I think 13, so I think. So then it wouldn't have any gender. I, no, and it happens in females. It's just for some reason it seems to be a little bit more likely in males. Which is strange because women are more likely to be cystic in general. In, especially in the reproductive system, yes. Yeah. yeah. So renal cystic disease, that's the general term. And yes. Yeah, so we looked, there's six different kinds. We're going to be talking about this one, okay? Because the rest of them, I don't want to say they don't happen, but they're really not as common. So everything we're going to be talking about is going to be polycystic kidney disease. All right, so the infantile one, which is the recessive, we should know that is usually fatal, okay? So you don't survive very long. The adult one, which is known as the um, dominant one, so this is going to be asymptomatic usually until you hit adulthood. So it could be in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, but usually prior to that, you're fine. Okay, so these people do survive for long periods of time. So if you have a lot of cysts in the nephron, it's not able to do its job, right? You're not going to get fluid going out into the renal pelvis. So if you're not getting fluid out into the renal pelvis, the fluid's going to back up. The fluid backs up. Too much pressure on the glomerulus. Too much pressure. Well, the glomerulus isn't able to get fluid out, which means the arterial is not able to get fluid in, which means there's going to be a backlog, which is going to create hypertension, okay? Because you're going to have a backlog of fluid into the cardiovascular system. So that's a very nondescript 
symptom. How many people have high blood pressure? Lots of people. How many people have polycystic kidney disease? Not that many, right? Okay, so fever and hematuria. Why would you have hematuria, which means blood in the urine? So, yeah, well, you're going to have, so if you've got cysts, you can have cysts anywhere. You can have cysts coming off the glomerulus, cysts coming off the Bowman's capsule. So if you do have cysts on the glomerulus, you're going to have these huge fenestrated gaps. There's already gaps, but because you've got the cysts and then they come off, it's going to damage the epithelium in the basement membrane, which now leaves these big gaps. If it leaves these big gaps, what passes through? Red blood cells. They're not supposed to pass through. So hematuria is a bad sign. Usually when you think blood in the urine, what's the first thing you think? It's a red flag, right? So the first thing you want to rule out is cancer. So if someone tells you about blood in the urine, you're referring them out because they want to rule out cancer. If they don't rule out cancer, then they can look at other things like pyelonephritis or glomerulonephritis, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, or polycystic kidney disease, right? But you want to rule out cancer first. So that's always a bad sign. Um, why would you have a widening girth, which basically means like your waist is now becoming wider? Because your kidneys are puffing up. Because your kidneys are getting larger. So that's going to be one of the things that you're definitely going to notice. Okay. How do you treat this? Could you give them yeah. Could. Like a or something. So yeah, diuretics are yeah, they would don't usually give them aldosterone, but you're right, they usually do give them um, diuretics, that's for sure. Now think about this. Diuretics makes more fluid go through the proximal convoluted tubules and the loop of Henle and the distal convoluted tubules and the collecting duct. More fluid means more possibility of cysts. Okay, but you're right, they do give them diuretics. For what purpose do they give them So usually, because you've got so much backflow and you're hypertensive, you do want to try and drop down that blood pressure, right? Because the cardiovascular system is pretty important. But other than diuretics, is there anything else they give them? What about blood pressure medications? They usually do give them blood pressure medications. Okay. So, oh yeah, we should know this, right? Normal flow of urine. We already talked about that. All right, so we talked about that. Now, in children, like I said, they usually don't have a lot of symptoms of pain. So aneurysis, which is bedwetting, is going to be a big one. Okay, so whenever you see a child that no longer wets the bed, that is now wetting the bed, please rule out kidney issues. Yes, it can be anxiety. Yes, it could be nightmares. It can be many other things, but please rule out kidney issues. Um, Polydipsia just means you're drinking a whole lot or you have excessive thirst. And then polyuria means you are peeing a lot, significantly. Right. So those will be a little bit different from kids to adults. And that's just symptoms. So here, cysts in other places other than the kidneys, this is where we need to know about the liver. The liver will also have cysts, and that's one of the ways this gets diagnosed, right? They're going to do an ultrasound, abdominal ultrasound, and they'll be able to see if the livers become enlarged. So ultrasound is really big, genetic testing is really big, and then CTs and MRIs to be able to assess the kidney a little bit more specifically. That's how it's going to get tested. So hypertensive medication, 
This can be painful, so they'll usually give them um, pain meds. It doesn't do anything to help the disease whatsoever. It's literally just to help with pain. Now, draining the cyst, they can sometimes come all the way up the ureter, the urethra, the urinary bladder, the ureter, and then go into the kidney and start to drain out excessive fluid in there. That's one way that they can do that. They can go laparoscopically, so through the belly button, right into the kidney to drain, or they can actually go transcutaneously, which basically means a big needle through the skin all the way into the kidney to start taking out some of the fluid. That doesn't, again, fix the issue, but it'll take a lot of pressure off of the kidneys. So that is kind of a temporary solution. Antibiotics only if there's a urinary tract infection that's present, but typically once you have this, um, it can take years and years and years and years and years for the kidney to really be damaged, but you will end up with end-stage renal disease, which means you're gonna end up on dialysis or maybe even a kidney or a, yeah, kidney transplant if you're so lucky. If you but get a kidney transplant, would that help? Like does it, like, do your genetics, now you no longer have the same genes in that kidney? So typically by the time you're getting a transplant, if your symptoms aren't happening to your 30, 40, 60, 30, 40, 50, and it can take 10, 15, 20 years for it to be significant enough for you to actually need a transplant, so now you're sitting in your 60s, 70s, so it will last you until you die. You know what I mean? Because that, even though you have the gene, yes, you'll start developing cysts, but it's gonna take a while for those cysts to develop enough that you're gonna have damage, right? And so by then you will probably, yeah, pass away for another cause. Okay, so end-stage renal disease is probably um, the worst case scenario. And then of course, if the kidney completely fails, then it's fatal, obviously. So we will look at a video. Um. She has been diagnosed with polycystic kidney disease, or PKD. Her doctor told her that there is currently no cure and no treatment for the disease. She has lots of questions about PKD, such as who is affected, how is it passed on, and what can she expect? Emily visits pkdcure.org to see what information she can find. She discovers that PKD is one of the most common, life-threatening genetic diseases, affecting tens of thousands of Americans and millions of people worldwide. PKD impacts men and women alike, and all races and nationalities equally. There are two types of PKD, ADPKD and ARPKD. ADPKD is the more common type, and the type that Emily has been diagnosed with. It is usually passed from parent to child. Children of parents with ADPKD have a 50% chance of having the disease. As a result, ADPKD often affects many people in one family. However, about 10% of people diagnosed with ADPKD have no family history of the disease. Instead, they have ADPKD because of a spontaneous new mutation. For people with ADPKD, fluid-filled cysts grow in their kidneys, causing them to grow larger and larger. Normal kidneys are about the size of a fist. Polycystic kidneys can get much larger, sometimes as big as a football, and weigh as much as 30 pounds each. Eventually, the cysts cause the kidneys to stop working. ADPKD can be a painful disease that keeps people from enjoying life to its fullest, taking a toll on a person's emotional, 
mental and physical health. ADPKD is the fourth leading cause of kidney failure, and once a person's kidneys fail, their only options are dialysis or a kidney transplant. The other form of PKD is ARPKD. ARPKD is a rare form of polycystic kidney disease that occurs in 1 in 20,000 children worldwide and can cause death in the first month of life. For children who survive the newborn period, about 70%, about one-third will need dialysis or a transplant by age 10. Emily is encouraged to find out that the PKD Foundation is committed to ending PKD. Their vision is that one day, no one will suffer the full effects of this disease. They are the only organization in the United States solely dedicated to finding treatments and a cure for PKD. The focus of the PKD Foundation is on funding research. They also provide education, offer support through local chapters, and promote advocacy and awareness. Emily decides that she can help by volunteering, getting involved with a chapter, and helping spread the word. That's fine. Um, we don't need to watch the second one on PKD. It's very similar. Okay, are you guys still good? Because we have two more things to do, I think. We're doing glomerular nephritis, and then, yeah, urinary bladder. That's it. So we have two more things to do. Do you want to break, or are we going to just plow through it? Okay, break it is. So let's come back at 25 after. We're doing it in class. Yep, so you can do it in a group. You can do it individual if you want. You have your notes. You have your textbooks. You have your laptop. You have your phone. You have whatever you want to use. It's a quiz? It's a quiz. <laughs> okay. The quiz is five. Yeah. It'll be the whole thing? Yes. It'll just be on general urinal. So last week and this week. Correct. And then quiz five is everything. Everything. Okay. With a focus, like, since, since the second test, I think there'll be a little bit more of a focus since the second test. But, yeah, it'll be everything. So we can do in the group, mm -hmm. individual, and we can see the laptop as well. Textbooks, laptops, cell phones, I don't care. The quiz. How many questions? For which one? Um, I haven't done it. I'm not done it yet, but it'll be somewhere between 22 to 25. I mean, there's, there's, if you want to call them cases, they'd be like four, five, six lines. Like it wouldn't be like the case, like the MSK cases that I gave you guys that are like a page long. Yeah. It wouldn't be like that. Oh, okay, okay. Um, in quiz That's number five. Final, right? Those are for our final. Yes, there'll be probably two. I'm thinking of those okay. in, on the final. Yeah, but there are going to be some 
I don't know if you want to call them cases, but questions that are like four or five lines. Like for example, acidosis and alkalosis, there's going to be a question on there and I had to give you a little bit of a history, right, so that you can figure out what the problem is. Are you going to add it something? Are you going to add it? Like in the scenario, or are you going to give like copy and paste, or just you going to make more edits in the semi? No. You know what I mean? Should we give this case, some case scenario? Mm -hmm. You're going to make, like change, you're going to change that Condition or history? Or oh, you history? mean for the, like the MSK cases? Yeah, yes, yes. No, it's going to be exactly the case. Okay. Oh, one of those cases? Probably of two. Are the ones you've given us already? Yeah. Oh, yeah. To encourage people to do them. She will review. She will review. Well, no, I'm not giving you the answers. No. But you go through it. Because she put the review MSK case. Well, because if you guys, if you haven't finished them, I can give you time in class to finish yeah, them. Please. And please. when we did it in class, you walked around I did. Yeah, yeah, so let's, yeah, okay, okay please. That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I could <know>, tell. <laughs> Wait, we still have you still have two more weeks? I know. Well, just, you know what it is? Leave assignments and stuff. Oh. I hate assignments. Give me a test any day. I know I have assignments. Okay, so we have to do quiz number four. Mm. It's, it's truly L5, but yes. And it's truly S1, not mm -hmm. L5 S1. Mm -hmm. It's truly S1. Mm. If you look in um, McGee, you'll see it says L5 and then S1 is bolded. Yeah. And there's another L5, right? Tip post. There's two, op there's two places you can do L5.
Oh my God. Sunday's December 1st. Wow. Sunday is December 1st. Yeah, it's crazy. It does. Sucks. I also think that as adults, there's a lot more responsibility, and I think I think you get so bogged down with all the stuff that all of a sudden it's you know three weeks down the road or five years down the road or you're just trying to get through your days right trying to get everything done and then yeah I don't know about that.
I love bubble tea. Oh, yeah. So is that what chat time is? Because you have the one on Bayfield Street. Yeah, that does bubble tea. Where? Where, um, uh, shoot. Uh, uh, besides Subway. Yeah, across the street from Georgia Mall. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, um, I forget what it's called. What's that? Yeah, something tea. <laughs> something tea. No, taro is my absolute favorite. Uh, taro. taro with with uh, tapioca. Uh, taro is sweet potato, but it's so good. You can ask for taro instead of bubbles. Oh, well, I don't know. That's so. That's the tapioca. I don't know if they do jelly. I know the places in Toronto will do jelly. Then oh, you so have that's, that's different. Taro. No, taro is like the yeah, fluid. It's purple. The fluid is purple? Yeah. What is taro? Like a, a it's taro? sweet potato. They make a drink out of sweet potato? Apparently. I don't know. It's my I favorite one. I think the taro is what they're making the... the no, that's, uh, that's tapioca. But you can make it. They make it from all kinds. Tapioca or sweet potato or uh, there's all different kinds. They don't tell you what kind they make it from. Like when you order this, you just say bubbles. You don't say tapioca. And they tell me when I've asked people, different, different tea places, they're supposed to go like... Sometimes it's sweet potato, sometimes it's tapioca, sometimes it's... So really? I, yeah. I'm not sure what you're saying. Because I, I know they have jelly, like what's, different, different. different flavored jellies. Yeah, that's different. That's completely different. But I'm wondering, what is your liquid? Your liquid can't be the tear, can't be mm -hmm. It is. It is. I've never heard of that. Oh, it's so good. I love tea. Is that what you said? What's that? I love tea. Yeah, oh, I love tea. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. So wait, have you heard of taro tea? Made, yes. made of tear. The liquid made of tear? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a pop, 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 it is more of a milky yeah, thing. So good. Oh my god, it's so good. But I was like in Cairo College, I lived downtown Toronto, and I used to pass every time I got off the subway, I'd have to I'd walk to where I was living and I'd pass three bubble tea places. So I'd have one every day. I have a bit of addiction to Two months later, I think I had gained like fifteen pounds. <laughs> they put like two liquid shots of liquid sugar. Yeah, like two shots. No. <laughs> I had to stop. I had yeah. to stop. Oh, but it's so good. Oh, so good. The best, the best tea, the best tea place, or like if you want more like just better quality, good stuff, is Ten Rens Tea Shop. Here. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. And they yeah. kind of make like you know they'll have the whole like the bud of jasmine, the whole bud or the whole like they have rose 
Rose. Really, eh? And then you can add the I only ever get taro. Really? <laughs> I because I tried lots of different flavors, and that was the one I fell in love with. And I just that's all I get now. Probably. I mean, we're talking about like fifteen or sixteen years ago is when I drank all of that stuff. I don't mind it. I don't mind it. It's a little bit earthy tasting. What's stuff? I wanted you to read the book. Oh, look at my definition. Yeah, I was going to say, I didn't get anything from you. It's Andrea.Joski. Or you can send it to. Yeah. How do you say it? It's actually Jasky. But well, the G I in Italian is like a J, and then the C H is like a K, right? Uh huh. So yeah. You think I would know this? Cause my <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh my God! What was I? What were we saying? Yeah, you can. You have my personal email, anyways. Yeah. Andrew Jasky at Hummel dot com. Oh, ours is georgiancollege.ca. So oh, got it. Why are you resisting this so hard? Because I don't run, that's why. But there's no better time to start. 
Well, I used to run, but now I don't. This is peer pressure. <laughs> Joanne is telling me no, so I'm going with Joanne. Joanne's like, stay safe, don't break your ankle, Barry. Don't run. And I'm like, okay. Joanne removes you from the hamster ball that you're living in. Oh, it's a big answer. Mom number two said you need to go. Okay. Like eating and lifting things. I didn't know order. So we're talking about glomerular disease, and really all you need to know about glomerular disease, because there's a lot more than what we're gonna be doing in class to know about it. But there's two syndromes essentially that we're gonna be talking about: nephritic syndrome and nephrotic syndrome. They, you will not know the difference between the two. Okay, so when people come in with symptoms, you will not be able to distinguish between the two. The only way you could distinguish between the two is with a urinalysis or a cytoscope, going up and taking a bit of the, um, the kidney, the biopsy of the kidney. But we do have to understand the differences between the two. So when we say the word glomerulonephritis, you would have heard this word before. Have you heard the word glomerulonephritis before? So last semester you guys did systemic lupus erythematosus, right? We did it again this semester. And if you talk about systemic lupus erythematosus, S-L-E, systemic. Okay. We did talk about it last semester. <laughs> you did. No, no, no. Right? Last semester we hardly we, we didn't touch on lupus. We didn't talk about it. But you guys would have talked about chronic fatigue, and fibromyalgia. In that same conversation, there last should have been. It's totally different. Okay. So, SLE systemic lupus erythematosus. So, if we break down the word, the systemic part tells you what. So multiple systems can be affected. Now, it could just affect the cardiovascular system and nothing else. It could just affect the, the musculoskeletal system and nothing else. It could just affect the integumentary system and nothing else. It could just affect the kidneys and nothing else. It could just affect the lungs and nothing else. You're getting, this, you're getting the idea, right? Okay, the lupus part, what does, that, what does that tell us? Lupus means lu, which means wolf. So it's that discoloration around the eyes, okay? And then the erythematosis, what does that mean? Redness. Condition of? Skin redness. Skin redness, okay? Anywhere or certain parts of the body? It is more common in the face, but it can be anywhere. You could have a rash like SLE anywhere. It could be, because it could affect the integumentary system. But when we're talking about the lupus component of the erythematosus would be in the face, right around the eyes. Sorry. So the lupus tells you where it's happening. It's happening around the eyes, like wolves will have a discoloration around the eyes or a lightning around the eyes. So that's kind of, if you break down the words. Okay, so now that we know that SLE, systemic lupus erythematosus, can affect multiple systems, do you think you can have a lupus glomerulonephritis? Sure. Okay, so SLE is an autoimmune disease which means that the body's immune system is killing off its own cells, right? So could it be killing off its own nephrons? If it kills off its own nephrons, is there gonna be an inflammation? So that's the nephritis part. The glomerular is that 
it can also affect the glomerulus, the basement membrane of the glomerulus itself. So glomerular nephritis is an inflammation of the nephron that really screws up the glomerulus. And if the glomerulus is screwed up, if it gets damaged, for example, that basement membrane gets damaged, you can have these huge holes. If you have these huge holes, what do you think you might see in your urine? Red blood cells. You might see blood in the urine. So hematuria, you could see with either one of these. Okay, so that's really not all that helpful, but you could see it with any one of these. Now, it is more common to be seen in glomerular nephritis. So we will just write down hematuria because it is more common in glomerular nephritis. Sorry, Andrew, the attacking of the immune system on the nephron is yes. nephrotic, and then attacking of the immune system on the glomerulus is that one, nephritic. No, so the nef a nephritic syndrome is also known as glomerular nephritis. Okay, but one attacking the glomerulus and the other attacking the nephron itself? No. No. Oh, okay. Either one of these are attacking the glomerulus. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay, these are both, the glomerulus is getting messed up on either one of these. It's just what is passing through the urine We'll identify if it's, if it's nephrotic or nephritic. Okay, so let me just say this. With a nephrotic syndrome, you'll have proteinuria. That's, this is the big differentiation between these two syndromes. If you test the urine and there's protein in it, you have a nephrotic syndrome. But you're still damaging the glomerulus. The glomerulus, you shouldn't be having large proteins go through the glomerulus, right? Because the basement membranes, the fenestrations, the gaps are only supposed to be small. You're not supposed to have lots of protein, albumin, for example, or red blood cells that are going through there. But when it's damaged, you've got now these wide openings, so things that aren't supposed to be in the urine are now in the urine. So the reason I said you would never know if they have a nephrotic or nephritic syndrome is because how do you know if there's protein in your urine? Okay, so you can see with the dipstick, or you can do a cytology, which basically means you're gonna take the urine, look at it underneath the microscope. But do, do we do that? We don't do that. So we, as massage therapists, would not know if you have nephritic syndrome or nephrotic syndrome. At the end of the day, do we care? It's a glomerular disease, guess what you're doing? You're referring out. So if you suspect either of these, get them out of here, right? Emerge. Okay, but, if I were to ask you a question like so-and-so is having um, frothy urine, really smelly urine, and through uh, urinalysis there's protein in the urine, what condition do you think they would be affected by? Then it would be the nephrotic condition or preeclampsia. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we'll talk about that because these can actually lead to preeclampsia or eclampsia or gestational hypertension as well. So, but yeah, that's... Those are gonna be consequences of these diseases. So those are the big things you wanna remember between those two conditions, okay? So, um, nephritic conditions, the causes are oftentimes immune. I say oftentimes, because they can be acquired. You can have a streptococcal glomerular nephritis, which is more common in kids. So if you have strep throat, and the infection never gets treated, that infection can go into the blood and if it goes into the blood, then it can go into the glomerulus. And if you now have streptococcus pyogens in the glomerulus, the body doesn't like that. So they're gonna mount an inflammation, inflammatory process, and they're gonna start damaging the glomerulus. Okay, so, but most of these are going to be immune. So you can have an IgA 
which is an immunoglobulin A disease that actually breaks down the glomerulus. All right. Um, let's see if there's anything else that's really important at this point to talk about. Did you do, so we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's mostly immune. That's fine. Nephrotic. Okay, we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Um, so the glomerulus is what's affected. Okay. So the main causes for nephrotic syndrome, the most, I shouldn't say, the most common causes will be amyloidosis, um, which is usually, um, minors will have this, so it's actually usually starts as a lung issue, um, usually from minors because of everything that they're um, respirating, oh, you inhaling. You said minors, I thought you meant people who were under 18. No, like people minors, actually like yeah. in, a, like, in a minor. <laughs> and then diabetes would be another one that would be, now this one would actually be the most common for us, right? In first world countries, you'd be seeing that a lot more than you would be anything else. Whereas with nephritic syndromes, SLE is really um, probably one of the most common ones or any kind of autoimmune diseases would be the second most common. Okay, so that's fine for those. Um, yeah, that's fine. We talked a little bit about that. Okay, so this is what we need to remember. When we look at both the nephrotic syndrome, okay, if I am peeing out protein, what is the most important molecule in your blood, in plasma, that holds your proteins in? Albumin, is that what you said? No, I said hemoglobin. Oh, okay, so albumin. So if you are losing protein, do you need to keep your albumin? No, it goes through. That's the problem. So you're going to end up with hypoalbuminemia, which means in the blood you have low albumin. That is dangerous. That is very, very dangerous. They will test for your albumin levels. That is something that's typically done in a CBC. If your albumin levels are low, it could give you an indication of a liver disease. That's usually the first thing they look at. And then number two, they'll look at kidney. Now, if your kidney or your um, liver are damaged, those are both significant issues, okay? So low albumin is significant. Okay, so now, say something else. Let's just say that I'm peeing out proteins and I have low albumin content. That means do I need to keep fluid in the cardiovascular system? If there's low amounts of protein in the cardiovascular system, do I need to have a lot of fluid? So where's the fluid gonna go? So you're gonna have edema in the interstitium. Okay, so that's really important. Um, along with this, you're gonna have low cholesterol, which, I mean, we, again, are high cholesterol, which again, we won't really know that. And then lipids in the blood, which again, we won't really know that. I mean, you could maybe see that on testing, but it's not significant. So the albumin is really, really important. The proteins is the most important. And then the one thing you will notice is the edema. So that is pretty significant for nephrotic syndrome. Now, nephritic syndrome has no proteinuria. That is the clincher. That is the main thing that differentiates these two, which we would never know unless we sent them out for testing, right? So if we think that there is glomerular damage, we refer out, testing gets done, and then they differentiate between the two symptoms or the two syndromes. They may or may not be present. 
Typically, it is not. That is the big thing that differentiates the two. And hematuria is usually in nephritic syndrome, but it can be in nephrotic, which again, the manifestations are not very significant for differentiating the two syndromes, but we don't We just need to refer out. Okay, so hypertension. Now, why would you have hypertension? Why would you have more blood pressure in the cardiovascular system if you had a nephritic syndrome? So your glomerular filtration rate is going to be low, which means what? Back up. Yeah. So your afferent arteriole is going to be going in to make the glomerulus. If you have a low glomerular filtration rate, which means very little fluid is going into the Bowman's capsule. If you have very little fluid, that means there's a lot of resistance here. If there's a lot of resistance here. You can't get all the fluid coming up from the afferent arterial, which means you're going to cause a backlog. If you cause a backlog, then that increases the pressure in the cardiovascular system, hence causing hypertension. So that is very, very common with the kidneys because, again, the kidneys regulate blood volume. And if they regulate blood volume, that means it regulates blood pressure. So a lot of the diseases are going to end up with blood pressure. Okay. In the nephrotic syndrome... What's that? I was just talking about this with somebody the other day, but there's a little nail. So if they have lines, okay, in, in the transverse plane, okay, so it goes from like medial to lateral edges, not from distal to um, proximal, but if it goes from side to side and they're white lines, it is not 100% saying that they have glomerular disease, but it is highly indicative of. So if you have a spoon-shaped nail, so your nail is really, really rounded, what do you typically think? Kidneys. What do you think? Liver, isn't it? Liver? You think respiratory. Oh, now, it could be anemia, but you first want to rule out respiratory issues, right? COPD is really common, chronic bronchitis more commonly, um, but it could be any respiratory issues. So when you see white lines in the transverse plane going from medial to lateral, lateral to medial, you think Merkur lines, which gives you an indication of possibly a kidney disease. So we're looking at people's hands and feet and nails and hair and all that kind of stuff is important because nails and hair are appendages, and these appendages oftentimes are really important in thyroid dysfunctions, right? That's one of the ways you can get an idea if it's hypo or hyper. What does the white one mean? That's the Merkur lines, that's what I'm saying. No, but those little bumps? They're, they're, it's, they're the same thing. So the top but and the bottom? They're the same, same thing, yeah. Okay. This, this is just really significant and late stage, wow. right? This would be the beginning of them. So this is where it's starting from. I know a lot of people have those things <laughs> So you won't be able to feel them. No, they just look like little white spots. I've seen, them, I've seen them more than once. Yeah, you have them. I in that. one fingernail no. or in multiple? So then I would add, I would if I noticed that, I would ask questions during my systems review about any um, smell of the urine, any rusty colored urine, any painful urination, any blood pressure, any headaches, any new headaches. I would be asking questions like that because not saying it is a kidney related, but it could be kidney related. That's all. Okay. 
So I thought this was a really great picture. <clears throat> so our Burger King man likes Coca-Cola. So in the nephritic syndrome, you're going to have Coca-Cola colored pee because you have hematuria, right? So your pee is going to be kind of orange or brownish. Now, right here shows you that there's going to be hypertension because if you're not allowing the afferent arterial to get blood into the glomerulus, it's going to back up, which is going to cause hypertension. Here, you're going to have very low P content because you have a low glomerular filtration rate, which means you have low amount of fluid going from the glomerulus to the Bowman's capsule. If you have a little bit of that, then how much are you going to pee out? Not very much. Um, and, then, and then oftentimes, it's autoimmune, so that's fine. Now, nephrotic, I remember this because the O makes me think larger. Yeah, puffy. So that leads you to the edema. And if you know about the edema, then you can figure out that there's going to be help with anemia. And then. This is just a little much for me. Well, yeah. That's just too much. Why does he think it was a dog? Because it's protein in it. Because he's bulking. It's bulking season for the dog. I'll take all things advice. But this kind of identifies what you need to know about the difference between the nephrotic and nephritic syndromes, right? So this is kind of a, a good picture for it. But the only thing you would note would be the edema, which of course you would want to rule out, what if you saw edema? What would be the first thing you want to rule out if you saw someone have lower limb edema? Cancer. Okay, that probably wouldn't be my number one, but you would want to rule that out. Cardiovascular system, right? So either way, if you have a left-sided left -sided heart failure, you're going to backlog. If you have right-sided heart failure, you're going to backlog. So I definitely would want to rule out heart. What else would I want to rule out? Okay, yes. Could rule in or out lymphedema. Although typically it is systemic. It is more common in the lower limbs. So cardiovascular would be my number one. What would be number two that you really want to rule out? Respiratory, you want to rule out. And then what's your number three? And two and three could go either way. What's the other one that would lead to lower limb edema? Before renal. Liver. Liver. So heart, liver, lung, those are the big ones you're thinking about. If you've ruled out heart, liver, lung, go to kidney. If you've ruled out kidney, go to lymphedema. Right? That's kind of how I would follow that out. All right. Um, so we already talked about how this gets diagnosed, your analysis, so your P-stick, so your analysis. Cytoscope will be also very important. Um, measuring the blood pressure, that is something that we can do. So if there's hypertension, you may be having um, a nephrotic syndrome. If this is something new, right? So your blood pressure's always been great, and now all of a sudden, over the last month, it's now been 180 over 120, and there's no reason for it. You're not super stressed, you haven't changed your diet, there's no reason for it. Definitely, I would be thinking about um, some kind of glomerular issue. Kidney biopsy, that's fine. So how do you treat this? Hypertensive medications. So that's kind of gonna help a little bit. Um, it's gonna help decrease the pressure on the glomerulus, but this is typically going to end up in end-stage renal disease at some point. It will help slow down the process, but once you have damage to the glomerulus, there's no coming back from that, right? So this, other than polycystic kidney disease, this would be another reason why you have end-stage renal disease. It's not quite as common as PKD for causing end-stage renal disease, but it, is, it will happen, definitely. 
So your statins to lower cholesterol, and that's just because you have hypercholesterolemia with your nephrotic syndrome, and you have hyperlipidemia with your cholesterol, with your um, nephrotic syndrome as well, so you'll take those meds. Again, do those meds fix the problem? No. They just are gonna manage your symptoms, right? They're gonna slow down the process. Um, so we'll end up in end-stage kidney disease, so that's really important. So high blood pressure is your complication, and then renal failure, and if you have renal failure, you're pretty much going to not survive. So it is fatal. At some point, you will succumb to it. But in essence, it makes up a group of diseases which affect the kidney. GN is a condition which affects the filters in the kidney. And these filters can either get inflamed acutely, and in that case, it starts spilling the blood and the protein in the urine. Or there's a slow process in which the kidney filters can get scarred and the waste products cannot get out of the uh, body and they start accumulating in the body and have negative health effects. The symptoms which make someone seek medical attention is generally swelling of the legs, sudden weight gain, patients noticing foaming of the urine, that uh, urine is very bubbly, that is indication that there is protein. Blood pressure suddenly spiking up, uh, having a new rash, with having the bubbly or this foamy urine. Those will be some of the symptoms which uh, someone uh, immediately contact the healthcare provider to see if they are developing inflammation in the kidney or gomatonephritis. The GM clinic uh, at Mayo Clinic is a multidisciplinary clinic of nephrologists with, who are the kidney specialists. The uh, nephropathologists, who are the pathologists specializing in kidney disorders, uh, radiologists. We have the help from the nutritionists and the immune system doctors, the rheumatologists. So when a patient is referred to us or a patient calls us with the symptoms which look like they may have GN, they are immediately seen by the nephrologist. The patient is evaluated to see if we can determine the cause of GN by the blood and the urine test or whether someone needs a kidney biopsy. Then the biopsy is done properly so we can get to the diagnosis and the cause for rheumatonephritis and then tailor the treatment specific for that patient. Sometimes we are able to offer certain research trials which are the cutting edge treatment for the patients with rheumatonephritis. Uh, so the autoimmune disorders are generally lifelong disorders. So you have to manage them, control them, Sometimes they go into complete remission, and patients may not have the symptoms for many, many years, and then they may start going, uh, coming up with the symptoms. So those patients need to be long-term monitored uh, for uh, relapse or making sure that the kidney function is stable. The other thing I would like to point out is that once the damage has happened to the kidney, that damage is generally not reversible in most of the cases. So the key thing is avoiding further damage to the kidney and maintaining the kidney function so a patient can have adequate uh, lifestyle and the health status. These AGN conditions can lead to kidney failure, especially if they're not diagnosed early. 
or the treatment fails to control the inflammation, the kidney function can progressively decline and patient may need dialysis or kidney transplantation. And some of these conditions can recur in the transplant. So having a transplant at a center where there are expertise for the GN is critical. So just to have an idea about the difference between the two syndromes. Nobody here is becoming a nephrologist, I don't think. So, but the kidney is so and specialized on its own. Yeah. Well, the kidney, there's a lot there. <laughs> okay, before I forget, because I someone asked me over a break. Quiz number four is GU only. I didn't mention this earlier. So it's only genital urinal, which means last week and this week. That's it. Okay? Whereas quiz number five is cumulative. It's from day one until we're doing today. That one in class, right? And we're doing it in and class. It's like, a, it's like a group effort in class. Open book, group effort. Yeah. Okay. Bladder urinary bladder cancer. Okay. What kind of cells make up the urinary bladder? Okay, so um, the so squamous cells are like squished, packed tight, right? Um, so you would have multiple layers. So usually when you have squamous cells, it's because you have something that's very thin, like a capillary, for example, or you have a bunch of layers that are squished together. If you have a structure like the urinary bladder, so it'll be like this big if it's not full, and then when it's full, yeah, it can be as big as this. So you're gonna need cells that are gonna change from cuboid to columnar, right, because of the stretch. So we would call those types of cells transitional epithelium. So the, and that's important to know because if you know that most of the urinary bladder is made up of transitional epithelium, what kind of typical cancer do you think you would have? Well, you would have transitional carcinoma. Transitional cell carcinoma is the most common. So 90, 80 to 90%, I think it's 90, but 80 to 90% of urinary bladder cancers are traditional or transitional cell carcinoma. Okay, we should know that. Um, so tell me about the urinary bladder. What's its function? So it holds urine until the internal urethral sphincter and the external urethral sphincter relax and then you allow voiding. So why would urinary bladder cancer be common and who might it be common in? Okay, so people who drink alcohol, it's not the most common, but yeah, that could cause it. Okay, so people who tend to not urinate for prolonged periods of time, but if I'm super, super healthy and I have no ingestion of any kind of carcinogen, Am I probably gonna get cancer? Probably not that likely. It's really likely with people who hold in their pee for a prolonged period of time and who hold a lot of carcinogens in that urine, right? So the job of the kidney is to get rid of toxins. 
So if you're working with tires, petroleum, dyes, um, a lot of chemicals, pesticides, you would have those things ingested through the respiratory system or through the gastrointestinal system, through the mouth, for example, and your body wants to get rid of all these carcinogens, right? Because it's garbage. So how does it get rid of it? You pee it out. Okay, so you've got, you're a dye worker and you work in dyes for eight hours a day, five days a week for the last 15 years. And you don't have time on your breaks to go pee because you have other things to do. So you hold your urine in for eight hours a day. So for eight hours a day, you have these carcinogens that are now attacking the mucosal lining of your urinary bladder. Anybody have a problem with that? Your bladder has a problem with that. So the issue is that there's carcinogens in the urine, because that's what you're doing, you're getting rid of garbage, and they stick around for a prolonged period of time if you're not urinating frequently, and that will start to cause a mutation along those transitional cells. So that's usually what ends up causing it. Okay, smoking is the number one risk factor. So they say, if you want to prevent urinary bladder cancer, what do you do? Stop smoking. Stop smoking and drink lots. Because if you're drinking lots, you're peeing lots. And if you're peeing lots, it means you're not holding in a whole bunch of garbage in the urinary bladder, which means you're not attacking the mucosal lining, which is wonderful. So is this preventable? It's preventable. All right. Um, and is it a dangerous one? Or is it's not a dangerous one. Um, so it's, it, it can metastasize, so it can go to a stage three or four, um, but it goes really, really, really slowly. So the great thing about this is that oftentimes it is diagnosed as stage one or two, which is wonderful. Yes, it could not be diagnosed and get to stage three or four, but it's really not very common. The what the symptoms like that you would what do you think the number one symptom is? Frequent urination. No, pain. Um, okay, so frequent urination can happen, but what do you think the number one symptom is? What is your red flag? Blood in the urine. Blood in the urine. And it is probably the most common symptom. So when there's blood in the urine, you're referring out. Because this is the number one thing you want to rule out. And if it's not this, it could be pyelonephritis. It could be glomerular disease. It could be urinary tract infection. Either way, not anything we treat. So refer out. But in your systems review, that's one of the things you want to ask about is blood in the urine, blood in the stool, because those are indications of possible cancer. Those are red flags, right? So um, now the problem, so you asked a question about how severe it is. It's not, it's, it's usually superficial and slow growing, slow growing, which is great. But there is a problem with this. They say 50 to 90% of urinary bladder cancers will reoccur. That's a lot. 50 to 90% will reoccur. That's a lot. So keep that in mind. So that is the major issue. If you've had urinary bladder cancer, you need to continue to get tested and look for symptoms because the chances of you having urinary bladder cancer again at some point is fairly good. But it's not the worst cancer to have because it's usually easy to diagnose. And it's usually diagnosed early. So that's wonderful. Okay, so your stages. So stage one is it affects the mucosal lining. Okay, so it's just the inner lining of the mucous membrane that's affected. So you've got cancer cells in there. So you've got a tumor in the mucosal lining. Number two, 
the cancer or the tumor goes into the skeletal muscles. So if you remember, there's smooth muscle all the way around the urinary bladder that's going to contract, right, to allow you to void. So that would be stage number two. Stage number three now, it starts to go through all the layers of the urinary bladder. And stage four, it's now gone into the lymphatics and cardiovascular system, and it can go to things like bone, lung, liver. Those are usually the most common places for it to go, right? Bone, lung, and liver. So three and four, not super common because it usually gets diagnosed before that. So this is kind of what it looks like. Now, can you tell me what stage is this? It's in the smooth muscles. So. It's in the smooth muscles, so it's stage two. Awesome. Now, had it gone all the way into the adventitia, into the serosa layer, that would have been stage three, and it could be also in the ureters. That would be stage three. But now if it jumped into the lymphatics and you found it in the liver and the lung or in the bones, that would be stage four. Okay, wonderful. So the number one risk factor is smoking. So a good conversation to have with patients if they have been diagnosed with urinary bladder cancer. It's probably already been had with them, but it doesn't hurt to have many conversations. Why is age a big one? Why is over 55 a big one? The older you are, the more carcinogens your body is being attacked by. So when you're 10, 15, 20, how many carcinogens are you really dealing with? Not for that long. But now you keep stabbing the wound for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, and that wound is really going to be problematic, right? You're probably going to change the cells because they've been damaged for so much. So almost any cancer, one of the risk factors is usually increased age. Okay, so you can put that for almost any single cancer. Um, Caucasian in men, I actually don't know why. Occupational exposure, that just has to do with carcinogens. Chemo and radiation has to do with carcinogens. Previous bladder cancer, that's because it's very common for it to recur. And then decreased fluid intake, because if you don't drink a lot, that means you don't pee a lot. If you don't pee a lot, stuff sits in your urinary bladder. If it's sitting in your urinary bladder, your mucosal membranes are constantly being attacked. Right? So that's good, good, good one to remember. Know that the most common type of urinary bladder cancer is your transitional cell carcinoma. That is, I think it's 80 or 90%. Okay, so that is really, really the most common one. The other two, not very significant to find. So hematuria, hint, hint, hint. Hematuria is your number one symptom. It is your red flag. So if there was blood in the poop, for example, would you just say, ah, it's hemorrhoids, don't worry about it. If someone's, if it's red, if someone comes in and says, I have red blood in my poop, do you say, ah, it's hemorrhoids? No, you refer out because you want to rule out colon cancer because that's the number one symptom or your red flag for colon cancer. Let the GPs rule out that it's not colon cancer. Maybe it's ulcerative colitis. Okay, but maybe it's ulcerative colitis, right? But let the GP rule out that it's not cancer and then get them referred to a rheumatologist or a gastroenterologist to treat the ulcerative colitis. Or is it just hemorrhoids? Could very well be. But as long as it gets assessed and they're diagnosed with hemorrhoids, then at least we know, right? So hematuria is the exact same thing. You always want to rule out the worst case scenario. It's your red flag, so you rule out cancer. So anything, no, yeah. The one reason 
I should mention this. The one reason that sometimes it doesn't get diagnosed until stage two or three is that your hematuria can be intermittent. So I can have pee in my urine today, tomorrow, for the next three, four days, and then I don't have blood in my urine for weeks or for months. So you worried about it? You're like, oh, went away, it can't be a big deal. And then weeks or months later, then you have red blood in your pee. Could be a couple weeks, could be a couple days, could be a couple months, and then it goes away. That would be the number one reason why. He just ignored his symptoms and then it probably went away, so that makes sense. If anybody tells you there's blood in the urine or blood in the stool, or if the stool is black, or if they're coughing out or coughing up blood, those are all red flags. You get them referred out ASAP. I don't care if it's intermittent or not. Let them rule out the cancer. And then if the cancer's been ruled out, then they can look at other causes. But that's. So then that would have been fairly late stage. He would have had that for a long time. Yeah, but uh, this helps understand maybe why. Like, he might have had a little bit of liquid blood and then it went away and then... Which is really typical. Okay, so that's one of the reasons why it might get to a later stage. So other signs, frequency, urgency, and dysuria. What do you think? Urinary tract infection. So I have a little bit of blood in my urine and I have these urinary... I probably just have a urinary tract infection. And then the blood went away. I probably just had a urinary tract infection, right? Oh, maybe a few months later the blood came back. Oh, maybe I have another UTI. Not a big deal, right? So that's fairly um, common if it gets to late stage. Now, we already talked about if there is metastasis, it likes liver, lung, and bones. And if it likes bones, it usually goes to spine. So it's not common for it to go to the ax uh, appendicular skeleton. They usually go axial skeleton. So if it's gonna manifest anywhere when it starts to uh, metastasize it's usually going to be in the spine in the liver or in the lungs so those are usually would it go to the lumbar spine because that's where it's located um they say that they have found it i have not seen this in any of my patients i've had i've had two patients with urinary bladder cancer and they was caught early so i don't know about them because it never metastasized but i haven't heard that there's a that it's more common in one region than the other i just i have read that it's skeletal like in anywhere of the spine. So, um, yeah, reoccurrence is very common. Hint, hint. Hint, hint. Really common. But it does, it's low grade and it's superficial, which means it usually doesn't metastasize by the time it gets diagnosed. So look at your number one symptom. Hematuria. So you know what would be a really good question, actually? Which of the following conditions does not cause hematuria? That would be a really good question, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Which of the following conditions does not cause back pain? It would be another really good condition. Anyways, okay, that's fine. Um, so actors, we don't have this here in uh, Canada, but this was American. Actos was one of the really common um, diabetic medications, and they took it off. The FDA took it off the shelves uh, quite a few years ago. I want to say like five or eight years ago because they realized that it led to bladder cancer. So, yeah. So prevention, we already talked about it. Stop smoking and drink more water or drink more fluids, hopefully healthy fluids, to be able to evacuate the bladder more often. And how does it get diagnosed? Urinalysis, cytoscope. Um, they might go up um, with a laser and kind of look at everything and take a biopsy, so that would be 
looking at it. Now your ultrasound, CT, and bone scans are usually going to be, if it metastasizes, they just want to see where it's metastasized to. So usually those ones are more for later on. Okay, so partial cystectomy. If the urinary bladder, for example, let's just say the urinary bladder, so we have our ureters here. So let's just say there's cancer in this part of the urinary bladder. So a partial cystectomy, they would literally just cut out a part of the urinary bladder and then reattach it. So if they catch it on stage one, that's definitely what they'll do. If they catch it on stage two, that's probably what they'll do. They'll also do radiation usually at the local site as well. If it has now grown and it has now gotten into a few places in the urinary bladder, they'll just take out the urinary bladder completely. So they'll do a radical or total cystectomy, which would lead to a urostomy. So just like if you take out the large intestine, for example, I have a patient who has ulcerative colitis and they were actually looking at taking out the whole entire, the whole entire large intestine. Um, so he's gonna have a colostomy bag. So it just basically collects the poop because you don't have a large intestine, right? Um, so they are taking out his rectum, but they're leaving his anus. So there's not, they're not gonna connect a small intestine to right, his. Useless, yeah. yeah, they're not gonna connect it. Yeah, well, yes. So they'll have a colostomy bag. So in this case, it would be the exact same thing. If they took out the urinary bladder, they wouldn't take out the urethra. Right? So they would just. for other things, the only use for one thing. The urethra in females, we only, that's the only thing we use it for. Yes. But yes, in males, it would be different. So the ureters, they would take the ureters and they would connect the ureters to the um, urostomy bag. So that would be the alternative, but that's a better alternative than to have cancer that metastasizes, right? So if it is found in stage three, two or three, they may look at doing a total um, urinary bladder removal. There's two little colostomy bag covers now too, eh? Oh, do they? I didn't know that. I have not, I have not. Um, so other than that, the problem with this, um, the complication is that it reoccurs, and then of course if you don't catch it early, which it usually is caught early, but if you don't catch it early, it could metastasize and obviously become fatal. So know your red flags, for sure, know your red flags. So we are done genital urinal. So we will post quiz number four by Sunday at 11 a.m., and it is only lectures 11 and 12. That's last week and this week. So next week, I'm gonna assume our review will probably take, I'm thinking that whole thing will probably take about two hours. I'm thinking next week, probably-ish. Um, yeah. Any questions? You feel good?